1: Hello and welcome back to New Books in Law, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm Jane Richards and today I have the great pleasure of speaking with Francis Wade. He's the author of Myanmar's Enemy Within, Buddhist Violence and the Making of a Muslim Other. It was published by Zed Books in 2019 most recently. Now just before we get started, I would like to tell you a little bit about our guest today. So Francis Wade is a journalist, he specialises in Myanmar and Southeast Asia he began reporting on Myanmar in 2019, oh sorry 2009 with the exiled Democratic Voice of Burma News Organization, based in Northern Thailand, before going on to cover in-depth the transition from military rule and the violence that accompanied it. He's reported from across South and Southeast Asia for The Guardian, London Review of Books, Time, New York Review of Books, and others. He's now based in London. Francis Wade, welcome to the show. Thank you. Now, just to get us started, can you tell me a little bit about yourself, and also how you came to write Myanmar's Enemy Within: Buddhist Violence and the Making of the of a Muslim Other?
2: Sure. So I um, took up a job in early two thousand and nine with the Democratic Voice of Burma, which is an exiled Burmese media organisation. They had offices in Chiang Mai, northern Thailand, as well as other sort of small bureaus on the Thai Myanmar border, and. And they essentially fed off a network of undercover journalists inside (laughs) Myanmar. And so this was still during the time of the former military dictatorship, the State Peace and Development Council. And I had come out to work on their English language website. And I stayed with them for three years. And towards the end of my time there, so we're getting into 2012, um, Myanmar was undergoing by-elections. That was the first time that Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy Party entered Parliament. Soon after that, in June 2012, this wave of violence erupted in Western Myanmar, in Rakhine State, between ethnic Rakhine and um, ethnic Rohingya, the former predominantly Buddhist and the latter Muslim. And I saw... um, kind of colleagues in uh, the so-called pro-democracy movement in Myanmar um, exhibit a certain sort of indifference, if not something deeper, an antipathy towards Rohingya. And so I started to focus on that conflict um, in increasing uh, detail and try to unpick why there was this, um, I suppose, resentment um against the Rohingya that had no sort of political boundaries. You know, it was felt as strongly by the military as it was by so-called pro-democracy figures. And I spent some time in Rakhine states in 2012 after these waves of violence, um, meeting with Rohingya, meeting with Rakhine, um, trying to establish what exactly had happened, what triggered the violence. Um, and the underlying grievances that had essentially turned neighbour on neighbour and it was from that early research that I started to piece together the foundations for the book which came out first edition in 2017 and second edition in 2019.
1: And that was one of the things I liked really very much about the book that you were actually Uh, there and you spoke to so many people and you included the interviews and you really got a sense as much as is possible of what it was like to be there and be on the ground. Um, And now you open the book with a really powerful recount of the events in Myanmar in 2017. And on that occasion, you arrived in a period of extreme violence with upwards of 15,000 Rohingya refugees crossing crossing into Bangladesh every day. Uh, To get us going a bit more, can you talk about Give a bit of an overview of the events of 2017 and what you encountered when you arrived.
2: That's right. So I arrived in southeastern Bangladesh about 10 days after the violence in western Myanmar began. And by that time, there were, I suppose, ten to 15,000 Rohingya crossing over the river that divided the two countries each day. Um there had been a pre-existing camp for Rohingya in that part of southeastern Bangladesh, um, populated by Rohingya that had fled previous um, episodes of violence in the late 70s and 90s. And that camp, by the time I arrived in early September 2017, um, so again, sort of 10 days into the violence in Myanmar, was growing at such a rapid pace and people were arriving in really quite dreadful states. They were carrying bullet wounds, um, they were carrying newborn babies that had been brought over the mountains and over the river from Rakhine state where the violence had taken place. And so I was working with an NGO. I um, began collecting stories of um, massacres that occurred in Rohingya villages um, in Rakhine state. And stories of you know the military arriving at night time encircling villages and just sort of freely opening fire into villages um stories of children being thrown into rivers um it was a very barbaric form of violence it showed the callousness within the military that had long been known through its attacks on other ethnic minorities um but this was something in a sense quite different the sheer scale of it um the area of what the military termed clearance operations um, was, I think about 200 square kilometres in this very remote, um, impoverished part of um, Western Myanmar. And yeah, it was just, it was a horrific sight. Um, Southeastern Bangladesh was, uh, you know, just full of very desperate um, people who needed urgent treatment, urgent attention. Um, hospitals were flooded with victims, um, you know, there were babies who had been burnt um, when the houses were set alight, there were children carrying bullet wounds in their legs and arms and so on. Um, yeah, it was a uh, extraordinary and very um, horrific thing to witness.
1: Yeah, it certainly sounds very, very horrific and it was um, so to read about. And now this occurred six years into the transition from military rule. Now with regard to the violence and transition from military rule during that period, you make an extremely interesting observation. In the book you write, the growing cause for the expulsion of a military group signalled that democracy might not have necessarily been viewed as a step in the direction of equality for all, but rather the pursuit of an ideal nation, arbitrarily defined but so delicate a conception that any obstacles in the way needed removing Rohingya were seen as intruders who would open the door to a deeper Muslim penetration of Buddhist society can you comment further on this what underpinned the expulsion of the military was there a nationalist drive that was unable or unwilling to accommodate the Rohingya peoples
2: So for this, we need to go back um, quite a way. Myanmar has Mm -hmm. long been the site of often violent contestation over ethnic identity, and this became more so after the military first took power in the early 1960s and really began its own efforts to consolidate control over the entire country. Myanmar, for those who have been, will know that it's this wonderful patchwork of groups and while the, I suppose, geographical center of the country is home mainly to the Burma ethnic majority, the border regions are incredibly diverse. And after the 1960s, as the military sort of consolidated its rule and pursued its homogenation, homogenization drive over, I guess, the latter part of the 20th century, these expressions of ethnic di- identity became more pronounced. And unsurprisingly, given the sort of extent of oppression um, by the military, these groups started to launch armed insurrections. And so at some point in the latter 1980s or early 1990s, the military decided without any justifying evidence that there were exactly 135 ethnic groups in the country. And it reworked its own citizenship law um, such that the rules around who or who could not be considered a citizen became much more, I suppose, unyielding than before. It was, um, after all, this sort of very nationalistic military dictatorship that saw uh, the majority of as a kind of master race and minority groups as second class citizens or worse. And those who refused this homogenization effort were considered saboteurs of the military's nation-building project. Um, and as a result, armed conflict has been a mainstay of Myanmar's political landscape for more than half a century. So it's got some of the world's longest-running um, civil conflicts. So there is this incredibly volatile landscape for ethnic be- uh, belonging there. After the citizenship act came into force in the early 1980s rohingya who predominate in the western um, part of the country in rakhine state as i've already said found they could no longer get citizenship so what happened as military rule went on was that ethnicity became the touchstone for membership of the nation and your ethnic identity was printed on your national id card So if you're considered one of the so-called indigenous groups, so those that had been there prior to British colonial rule, then you'd be given citizenship, if not, you're denied citizenship. And because the Rohingya were not considered indigenous, but rather these imports, I suppose, who had started to come over from the subcontinent during British rule, when the border between India and Myanmar was effectively done away with, and who had settled in Western Myanmar, they had long been the subject of this, um, I suppose, gamut of hugely discriminatory state measures. And soon after the political opening began in 2010, they became targets of several waves of violence in Rakhine State and Western Myanmar. So that's the violence that I referenced earlier when I'm talking about um, what happened in 2012. This violence had a communal feel to it. It was largely between Rohingya and Rakhine. Um, who they share the state with and between whom there has been this very long-standing tension over who claims the state, who owns the state. But in the months prior to that 2012 violence, so we're talking in between the first um, sitting of the new sort of semi-democratic parliament in 2011 and 2012, Rakhine political parties, monastic networks and otherwise had been agitating against the Rohingya and the military's long-running policies that single Rohingya out as this very threatening expansionist Muslim presence um, as well as the involvement of security forces in attacks and their overseeing of you know these internment camp systems for tens of thousands of Rohingya that grew up after the violence meant that those waves of violence that happened in 2012 and that kind of repeated in the years after um, appeared to me and many others as clear extensions of a violent state project to weaken the Rohingya. So when I write in the book about this effort to weaken Rohingya as, in a sense, part of the democratization agenda for many nationalist forces in Myanmar, I suppose what I mean is that Rohingya increasingly had come to be seen as outsiders who would compete for the scarce gains that democratisation might afford to other ethnic groups who considered themselves indigenous, uh, deserving of the political and economic rights that liberalisation could bring. And so this so-called ideal nation was one in which those who truly belonged in the country finally had an equal say in the country's future. Yet yeah, there were these groups like Rohingya, Muslim, with cultural values apparently antithetical to Buddhism, who are seen to be, um, and this is very much owed to the military's decades of propagandizing over the threat of so called outsiders to national cohesion and harmony. Um, these groups who are seen to be impure and who needed to be driven out, and that sentiment built in Myanmar as the political landscape in the country changed over the years after the opening began in 2010, and it reached its culmination in 2017 with the mass expulsion and the seemingly widespread popular support for it.
1: Right, so in this context, I'm wondering if you can tell me about the Arakan Ro- Rohingya Salvation Army. How was it emblematic of what the Rakhine and others in Myanmar feared with regard to an empowered Rohingya ma- majority? sorry, minority, gaining a foothold in the country?
2: Yeah, this armed group formed among Rohingya diaspora in the years after the 2012 violence, and it began to recruit in the Rohingya villages of Rakhine states. Um, Rakhine had always feared and empowered Rohingya, both for the reasons I just gave, you know, that Rohingya would be better place to compete for resources and for political capital, In what many seem to view as a sort of delicate almost zero-sum political landscape whereby you know for instance minority groups could only ever get a very limited number of parliamentary seats because of Myanmar's first-past-the-post system Um, but also that any armed conflict that draws in state forces would be hugely destabilizing for everyone affected by conflict. The fact that after four years of sort of suffocatingly tight restrictions on movement for Rohingya after the twenty twelve violence. Remember that tens of thousands of Rohingya were in camps and the remainder faced very tight restrictions on their ability to leave their villages and so on. So the commonly used description of Rakhine State as an open-air prison for Rohingya isn't far off the mark. The fact that in spite of this, Rohingya could still mobilise, as the first attacks by the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army in 2016 demonstrated, that would have proven to Rakhine that they still remained a threat, that this threat hadn't been adequately dealt with, they had violent intentions, that shadowy armed groups could still operate in the remote villages of Rakhine State, all this would have driven home fears that had never quite been allayed and that I think tapped into sort of existential anxieties that were common among reclaimed people.
1: And now you touched on this a moment ago when you talked about the ID system and restrictions on movement. So even before the violence began, Rohingyas were subject to significant restrictions on their rights and liberties. Can you elaborate further on this?
2: Yeah, so the camps that emerged after the 2012 violence were, I suppose, the most visible expression of restrictions that were tightening more and more. And conversely, this was happening as the political opening in the rest of the country was gathering pace. What struck most people who didn't fixate only on uh, developments in Myanmar's centre as the transition progressed was that throughout the border regions, things were actually worsening. Um, just as they appeared to be improving in the centre. And Rakhine State became this acutely divided state. And so i had spent time there after um, the second wave of violence in October 2012. And it really was a deeply depressing, worrisome environment. There was so much resentment um, between the two communities. This apartheid-like system, um, I guess, rolled out across the state um, and it meant that in large chunks of Rakhine state, Rakhine and Rohingya communities were kept far removed from one another. Um, there were these sort of camps where tens of thousands of Rohingya were contained for years. They couldn't leave them. Um, they could do very little um, inside of them. And it, this, I guess, mass interment of Rohingya may have temporarily reduced the potential for I suppose, communal flare-ups, but it allowed mutual fears and resentments to fester and it blocked what is vital in the aftermath of communal violence, which is, I suppose, space in which each side can interact again and come to understand that the other side isn't dangerous or threatening. But instead, everything that existed previously, all these fears just sort of calcified Um, So what happened in 2016, 2017, after the Arsa attacks, really came as little surprise, I think.
1: And you spoke to many of the citizens on the ground. um, And in in respect, you know, you just talked about this building resentment and division in society. So then what motivated regular citizens to take up arms against their neighbours?
2: There had been this sharp heightening of tensions after the 2012 violence. And like I said, because the communities were kept apart, one could argue that you know it might have reduced the potential for more of the communal violence to flare again. But it also meant that these fears, these suspicions, these, these resentments hardened. Save for, I suppose, a handful of small-scale civil society-led initiatives in the aftermath to bring the communities back together, the states in Myanmar... And here we think of the military, we think of recline political parties, the National League for democracy, and so on really showed very little inclination to attempt to cultivate any sort of degree of harmony between the groups. so relations which prior to two thousand twelve had certainly had some tension but were rarely you know as violent as they came to be, remained marked by fear and grievance and Once you have those emo- emotions in place. Um, And once a particular community has been set up as a threat, both sort of material and in a way existential, um, because there is this ethno-religious element to the um, conflict, it becomes much easier to sell the idea that violence, and here we're talking, you know, cleansing, expulsion, mass murder, is a legitimate, justifiable measure to take. So I spoke to um, Rohingya, who featured in the book who saw old friends among the Rakhine communities in their village uh, joining in with the attacks in 2017. And the striking thing was that the person I have in mind, Ahmed, who the book begins and ends with, who was a young community leader in Rakhine state prior to the violence, um, he was Rohingya, and who had seen old school friends um, from the Rakhine community among the mobs who aided the military as they sort of shot and burned their way through his village, Chup He wasn't really surprised to see his friends finally turn on them to the extent to which they took part in a massacre. Um, And I think because the propagandising had been so unrelenting over the previous years that, you know, neighbour did finally turn on neighbour.
1: And, of course, all of this sort of uh, seeming threat and their violence didn't appear from, from nowhere. Uh, like many former British colonies, the legacy of colonialism left vacuums of power, which ultimately caused divisions and contributed to the later violence. Can you tell me a bit about the British colonialism and th- that period and the lasting impact on the, com- the country?
2: Yeah, so this is, uh, in a sense, it's too much to go into any real detail on. Um, But to give an overview, um, so much as it did with its colonies across Asia and Africa, the British, I think, saw it as their mission to undertake what they believed was, and I use scare quotes here, a tidying up job. Um, and so to bring a sense of coherence to what they felt was a confused and volatile mixture of sort of tribal groupings that supposedly existed in pre-colonial times, um, So to give a sort of very basic explanation, what had been rather more fluid dynamics between different cultural groups in pre-colonial times. And again, I put cultural in scare quotes because we're talking about a range of sort of identifying characteristics, language, dress, custom, um, political allegiances even. These had all been somewhat fluid and changeable um, before the arrival of the British and people regularly moved between ethnic groups. That was evidently too much for British administrators to handle. They wanted very clearly delineated groups that they could survey, they could count and minister with some ease. And so these Porous boundaries between groups over time hardened into quite rigid um, borders, and the intergroup exchange and movement was replaced, I suppose, to an extent, and this wasn't an altogether successful project by the British, by much more fixed ideas of identity, who belongs to whom, and so on. And the military used this understanding of distinct groupings um, to effectively politicize ethnicity because different ethnic groups now had different privileges. And, you know, as the ID cards introduced by the military later showed, everyone's primary identity was ethnicity. And once ethnicity becomes politicized, um, as well now from these sort of countless inter-ethnic fits of violence in uh, post-colonial societies, mm-hmm. it can very soon become militarized. Um, And the military did much to develop these notions. But the foundation was really laid when the British arrived in the 19th century. And I suppose brought with them a very regressive race science that had no root or relevance to the societies they imported it to, like Myanmar.
0: This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com/system all lowercase to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com/system.
1: And that was a really interesting point that came through in the book: how the British did actually sort of calcify the, as you just described it, the fluid, dynam- fluid dynamics between the various cultural groups. I want to pick up more now on, you just mentioned how the under the military junta, they uh, sort of politicised ethnic nationalism and used it in furtherance of their sort of own agenda. So during the military junta period um, that ruled Myanmar during the transition, there was a particular vision of an ethnic nationalism. Now you recounted, um, there was evident, you know, all over society. So for example, on signboards, And mottos, for example, one signboard in the immigration office you wrote uh, read, The earth will not swallow a race to extinction, but another race will. The junta's motto was, One voice, one blood, one nation. And other billboards implored citizens to crush all internal and external destructive elements as the common enemy. Can you tell me a bit more about this period of junta rule and the ethnic nationalism which characterized the period and about the military's project of?
2: National unification. Yeah, I've touched a bit on this already, but the military mm. essentially continued the work of the British in carving up the population into discrete groups that had no, um, I suppose, rational basis, and that ultimately pitted one group against another, and the military's privileging of certain groups over others. And we're talking here mostly of the majority Burmah over. Um, the various minority groups created what I suppose was a hierarchy of privilege um, and hierarchy of belonging. And it taught that this was, you know, the military really taught that this was the natural order of things. So school textbooks stereotyped Burma as kind of developed and cosmopolitan um, minority groups were depicted as peasants and unsophisticated. And, um, but the military also, of course, wanted full control of the country. And so it spent decades and still continues to executing these campaigns of violence in minority regions to weaken minority groups and their armed factions. Um, and sort of, uh, I suppose, carried out these campaigns of more structural violence, whereby the teaching of minority languages was banned, um, minority groups and remember here that ethnicity was printed on ID cards, essentially faced much more limited horizons compared to Bamar, whose you know own life opportunities were also severely curtailed by military rule and by the oppression it brought.
1: And now I want to talk about these campaigns of violence against minorities in the context of genocide. So you write in the book that the language of genocide forewarns Oh, sorry, the language that forewarns of genocide speaks of irresolvable differences between communities of people. Can you contextualise this in the context of Myanmar?
2: Sure. So, again, we go back to the hardening of group boundaries that began under the British and was continued by the military. Um, it's more obvious in Myanmar between groups like Rakhine and Rohingya than it is um, between, say, like Baman and Karen, um, which is another minority group. There's generally been popular support for Karen struggles for autonomy and political rights um, among non-Karen communities like Burma. But for the Rohingya, they've been depicted in so many media outlets and so many monk speeches, government statements and so on, as just innately different and innately violent and absolutely not part of Myanmar society. And it's really that language which is simultaneously debasing and that speaks of an inborn malevolence that can have such a powerfully mobilising effect as we've come to see in the country.
1: And now, during the 1990s, the government introduced a bizarre policy of the early release and relocation of prisoners and also the relocation of homeless families from squatter camps outside Yangon to the Rakhine State. Can you tell us some of what happened here and the policy behind the resettlement? Now, you actually visited the prisoner villages. What did you see?
2: this was uh, i mean both a very fascinating and very dispiriting experience um i'd been talking with a friend one evening years ago who mentioned the resettlement scheme it's not something i'd heard about before and i couldn't find um a great deal of literature on it i hadn't been to that area of northern rakhine state previously um it's very difficult to access you need permits and permissions and whatnot um but I found the notion of resettling Buddhists up there, which was the main goal, you know, to dilute the Muslim population as, you know, sinister as it was interesting. Um, To me, it sounded like something, I guess, reminiscent of the Israeli settler project in the West Bank. And so I managed to get permission um, to go up to northern Rakhine state and you take a boat from Sittwe, which is the state capital, up to a small town called Buti Down. I'd gone there with a kind friend, and it turned out that um, among the Buddhist communities that had been incentivized, and this began um, in the early 1990s, um, it turned out that among those communities um, that had been incentivized to relocate there were families from squatter camps in Yangon and elsewhere but also prisoners who were given early release um, from jails in Mandalay, from jails in Yangon, on the proviso that they would shift themselves and even their families up to that, you know, very malarial, impoverished corner of the country. So my friend and I drove around a few days trying to find the last remaining prisoner village, most had emptied out years before because the deal was that they only needed to stay three years and in effect sort of seen out their sentence. Um, And we found a village that was basically inhabited by former prisoners. This, as I said, this project began in the early 1990s and continued for, I think, a couple of decades afterwards. Um, Perhaps it still does, I don't know. And I interviewed people in that village who had been visited in their cells by prison wardens and told that if they wanted to get out early and basically board a boat that would carry them four days around and up the coastline to northern rakhine state and if they wanted you know a newly built home monthly rations a cow and so on they could um i've no idea how many people in total took part in this scheme um it happened over a number of A number of waves i think 11 waves um up into the sort of late 1990s or 2000s um and it meant that people with no experience of farming were moving to a part of the country really remote where farming was the main source of income and so they led these lives blighted by poverty um and in these villages, there were these makeshift brothels, um, there was heavy drinking, gambling, and so on. And it was clear immediately for me that the regime felt that these people were just pawns. They were expendable. They could be freely used and dispensed with. And it seemed to show just how callous um, the regime could be in a way that's sort of different to the outright violence um, it's best known for. It's a different type of, sort of cruelty and manipulation.
1: Yeah, it certainly seemed a very um, strange policy of segregation and extreme disregard for human dignity. Now, I would like to turn to um, one topic that came through in the book, and you have touched on this before, about how the Rohingya people became a legitimate target of violence. So you've written that the alienation of the Rohingya community from the once plural society of the Rakhine state and the nation more broadly and the loss of dignity that accompanied the stripping of their basic rights fueled a process that over decades has come to see the group dehumanised, ostracised and finally set up as legitimate targets of violence. So how does any ethnic or religious group become a legitimate target of violence? And specifically, how did the Rohingya people become a legitimate target of violence?
2: Well, it happens once the conviction has set in that they are a threat. Um, and it's the same, you know, foundational process that fueled the Rwanda genocide and other cases where campaigns of state violence essentially become these mass participatory projects. If the other side is a threat, then violence becomes an act of defense um, and not aggression. And I think to see Rohingya over several decades be, you know, pulled out of buses at checkpoints and searched um to see them needing permission to travel, um, to not be allowed to build mosques without without permission from authorities, and to eventually be interned in camps or in ghettos or inside their villages. This is exactly the kind of thing that can turn people already minded to see them as an unwelcome presence, actually see them as a real danger and a danger that needs remed- remedy. And that, I think, is the foundation for... Um, Uh, a campaign of violence that draws in, um, you know, otherwise quote-unquote ordinary people.
1: And there was this sort of like uh, very specific um, literal violence, but there was also sort of figurative violence, for example, by the segregation um, of towns and villages. So one of the towns and villages that you wrote about in the book was Sitway, and it was completely segregated after the 2012 violence and you wrote, wrote about the reports of mass graves. It was extremely moving to read. You went into the area. Can you tell me what you saw when you got in there?
2: Yeah, so the reports of mass graves were coming from places just north of Sitway. But in October 2012, when um, I visited Sitway, um, you know, we'd wait at the jetty in the town and see boats um coming down the river carrying Rakhine who had been wounded after Rohingya had attacked their villages. And we heard these reports of sort of um, graves being dug because, um, you know, masses of people had been killed. Um, When things erupted in Rakhine State in 2012, and remember, Sitway is, is the state capital, but it's a smallish town close to the, to, close to the coastline. When things erupted, people were being bust in from villages outside the town to participate in the violence. And the first wave, this was in June 2012, lasted four days. As I said, a second wave followed in October that year. Um, when I arrived soon after that second wave, the town was completely segregated um, and so inside Sitway there was a Rohingya neighbourhood, Ang um, Mingala, that had remained populated by Rohingya after that first wave in June, when everyone else had been driven out, um, or all other Rohingya had been driven out. Um, and the streets feeding into Ang Mingala were guarded by police barricades. Rohingya could not leave the ghetto Um, So it was this sort of ghetto in which Rohingya were confined. Um, It was the size of a small neighbourhood. They couldn't leave to go to markets. They could only really leave um, in the event of an impending birth or a very serious illness, in which case they would go to a hospital in Sitway where they'd be treated on what become segregated wards. So Rohingya would have one floor, Rakhine would have the other floors. Outside of Sitwe, a number of camps developed at their peak. I think they collectively housed around 140,000 Rohingya and Rakhine who had been displaced by the violence inhabited separate camps elsewhere. Um, many of these Rohingya camps have grown up around existing villages and like the Ung ghetto inside the town, they were guarded by armed police. Rohingya couldn't leave. Um, And a couple of years after that 2012 violence, there was this mass exodus of Rohingya on boats from Myanmar and also from the camps in Bangladesh to elsewhere in Southeast Asia um, through networks run by sort of trafficking um, groups. So essentially, once these camps had um, grown up and once these restrictions had tightened around Rohingya, the only real exit for them was the sea. Um, much of Rakhine State had become segregated, except for these small pockets in towns like Butytown, which I write about in the book, where the two communities still interacted. I haven't visited the area in some years, so I can't speak to conditions there now, but from what I gather, there's been no improvement in the security landscape, and now we have tens of thousands more Rakhine displaced as a result of this newer conflict that has erupted between the Arakan army which is a Rakhine insurgent group and the military, and so that's further undermined an already sort of very desperate security situation.
1: Yeah, I mean, anyone listening, I would certainly recommend you read <coughs> Francis's book just to really get an idea of actually these sort of horrific scenes. It's it's really it was difficult to imagine. Um, sticking to this theme of violence, and I hope I get this uh, pronounce this uh, town correctly. The violence in Mctilla in central Myanmar in 2012, which was the year following the Rakhine State violence, was particularly horrific, not just for what happened but because of the efficiency with which it was carried out. Now, can you tell me about what happened in Mictilla and how indicative this was of things to come?
2: Yeah, so six months after the second wave of violence in Rakhine State, um, so we're actually talking March 2013 now, these fits of violence that had... Remarkably similar characteristics to um, those which took place in Rakhine State began to occur in towns in central and eastern Myanmar, and so often there would be a trigger incident. So, usually, a Muslim accused of some sort of wrongdoing, and then their house or property um, would be set upon by groups of Buddhists, and then this would spread to other Muslim neighbourhoods. And so, Megtila, um which is um, south of Mandalay in the country's central dry zone was hit by a particularly savage wave of violence in March 2013. There had been an argument in a gold shop run by a Muslim family. The Buddhist customers thought they had been ripped off. Um, Crowds gathered outside and began stoning the shop. Later, elsewhere in the town, a monk was pulled off a motorbike by a group of Muslims and killed, and then mobs of Buddhists began arriving on buses in the town and attacking and raising Muslim neighbourhoods. This all took place amid um, an intensifying agitational campaign led by nationalist monastic groups, and monks had visited Maitland in the months before um, March 2013 to sermonise on the... I suppose, fragility of Buddhism and the need to protect it. Um, So essentially tensions that had seemed particular to Rakhine State were now being felt um, and being stoked in the centre of Myanmar. And after the Mictila violence, similar waves occurred in various other towns, and they followed a similar pattern. So a trigger incident, and then the arrival of arrival on buses of men from outside of the town who set about attacking Muslim neighborhoods. And so that, of course, raised questions about uh, a higher hand in the violence, given the regime's well-documented sort of history of using civilian mobs. And these are often made up of people from impoverished communities who have paid you know, pittance for their participation in mob attacks. And um, to sow communal discord. And my sense, and I think that of many others, is that three years into the transition, so this, again, was 2013 now, um, with the National League for Democracy the previous year having won resoundingly in by-elections, the military knew that its hold and power needed to be, uh, I suppose, reinforced, and that communal violence and instability ostensibly showed the need for uh, strong leadership and a strong security state, lest the country, you know, spiral into violent conflict. Um, And therefore, that there may have been strategy and logic behind the uh, purposeful fomenting of communal violence. There was never a smoking gun to prove this theory, um, that the military was overseeing the whole show so that it could shore up its authority but I think it certainly has credibility. And we now know, of course, um, in the wake of the February coup this year and the violence that's followed it, that the military is absolutely uninhibited in its cruelty and in its willingness to manipulate fears and to use uh, barbaric methods to force the population to submit to its authority. So I wouldn't be in the least bit surprised if much of the seemingly communal violence of the past decade was organised by elements within the regime.
1: Yeah, it's it's really um, terrifying to think of. Um, So then, you know, in the context of this sort of humanitarian catastrophe and, you know, some UN experts later described the violence as genocide. So I want to actually talk about the role of the UN in all of this. It was described um, as glaringly dysfunctional. Can you tell me a bit more about what the UN did or perhaps what they didn't do?
2: Yeah, this is quite a long and, um, I suppose, complex issue. But the long and short of it is that as the transition advanced and as things actually regressed in the border regions in Myanmar, so again, not just Rakhine State but Kachin State and Shan State, and other regions where armed conflict intensified as the country um, sort of began its opening, the UN showed itself to be a fairly impotent, incompetent institution um, that was ill equipped to handle the sort of many crises that were emerging and that it was absolutely ineffective when it came to atrocity prevention in particular. And Via my sort of interviews with um, you know people who worked within the UN and so on, it became clear that it had been too afraid of criticising the government and the military. It felt it needed to stay on side if it was to continue its work in what had become a very sort of hostile environment for you know aid distribution, um, political influencing, and so on. And so. What emerged as these crises escalated was a situation in which there was no coordination between in-country UN teams and the UN headquarters, there was no clear leadership, there was competition between different UN agencies inside the country, some of whom wanted the UN to be much more vocal about the severity of the crises and the role of the government and military in worsening these and others who wanted to pursue this policy of quote-unquote quiet diplomacy. Um, who thought that careful, sensitive, sort of non-public diplomacy was the best and only way forward. And Ban Ki-moon, when he was at the helm of the UN, had published a directive known as Human Rights Up Front, um, so this is going back sort of six years, I think, um, that Explicitly called on UN staff to raise the alarm when they see warning signs of impending atrocities, Um, and that if they did so, they would be listened to, and that action would be taken. So effectively, that there would be support for those who did. And the warning signs in Myanmar were in abundance: Uh, the camps for Rohingya, the dehumanising language, the sort of freely violent police and military, you know, segregation and confinement over in sort of Kachin and Shan state intensifying armed conflict, mass displacement, all these things. And yet the UN resident coordinator at the time, who is effectively head of the UN's in-country operation, opted for this path of quiet diplomacy and pressed staff to forward line. Um, And I mean, the uh, sort of flip side is that, of course, it's doubtful whether the UN could have really ever influenced the course of events. Um, We know the military to be very singularly minded but it demonstrated once again like Rwanda like Srebrenica like Sri Lanka that the UN just does not have the capacity or creativity to address atrocity warning signs Um, you know its humanitarian teams still do vital work in the country but there are I think serious questions that are now being asked of its ability to do much beyond that
1: and perhaps can you just contextual contextualise the UN's response a little bit further um, in the broader failure of the Western response to what happened?
2: Yeah, well, again, it's difficult to know exactly um, what the UN could have done. By 2016, when um, the Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army launched its first attack, the UN had essentially become... Um, it lost whatever influence it might once have enjoyed over the military. Um, but, you know, it wasn't the only institution to pursue this policy of quiet diplomacy. Um, that was essentially the um, the approach taken by many Western governments um, who had banked heavily on the transition um, sort of heading in the direction they envisaged it going in. So a political opening in which Western influence could become stronger in which there could be greater access to the economy. Um, And so there was this, you know, the UN's often singled out because it has um, part of it is, you know, it has a a atrocity prevention mandate. Um, So it's singled out as to blame for what happened, but it really was a failure of, um, I suppose, the West democratization agenda, that they didn't see the um, cruelty of the military. They felt the military was committed to a transition. They didn't understand that the military um, is a very sort of capricious, mercurial institution that can um, uh, sort of portray an image of reform or reformist um, mindsets and then completely undermine that and um, go back to the barracks as we've seen it done. Um, so in a sense, it's unfair that the, the UN takes the majority of the blame. It is um, a failure of you know, democratisation efforts more broadly and a very sort of myopic view of um, how politics in Myanmar works.
1: And that makes perfect sense. So now, Francis Wade, I've taken up a lot of your time, but just before you go, can you tell me what are you working on now?
2: So I'm still writing a lot on um, sort of identity and violence. Um, I had, uh, I suppose, taken my eye off Myanmar somewhat until uh, the coup happened in February. And since then, I've produced quite a few articles, um, I suppose, analysing the mindset of the military and the reasons for the coup, Um, but also the resistance endeavours that have been undertaken by the population. Um, So I continue to write on Myanmar, but I'm interested in the themes that um, I began to specialize in Myanmar. So sort of mass mobilization, violence and how people resist and um, address causes of sort of discrimination and the foundational aspects of mass violence. So I'm still very much invested in the topic itself, um, even if I'm not so much focused on Myanmar anymore.
1: Yeah, and um, that sounds really interesting and I would recommend to listeners to have a look out for Francis's work. Um, you know, you can see a lot online because he does, he's a journalist who publishes really widely. Um, so just to sort of bring it all together, um, I've been speaking with Francis Wade. My name's Jane Richards. We've been talking about his latest book, which was first published in 2017 and then again in 2019. It's called Myanmar's Enemy Within, Buddhist Violence and the Making of the Muslim Other. Francis Wade, thank you for your time.
2: Thank you, Jane. It's been a pleasure.